0: Okay, is everyone ready? I'm going to take more of a modern day postmodern church approach to preaching this morning. I'm going to sit down cuz my pulpit, the pulpit's not here, so kind of nice a little bit different format. But I hope that won't uh, keep you from hearing bold preaching this morning. Just cuz I'm sitting down doesn't mean it's not going to be bold and to the point. So um I may look like Rob Bell this morning, (laughs) but I'm not going to preach like him. I can promise you that. I can promise you that. Turning your Bibles to Revelation 9. Last week, we basically just got through one verse. And the the majority of my message was spent talking about this star that John saw fall from heaven. And I believe this star falling from heaven is a reference to Satan, the dragon. And I believe chronologically what John is seeing here with the fifth trumpet judgment is the aftermath of what happens in the background in Revelation 12 when that dragon is cast out of heaven with his angels by Mark Michael and the host of heaven. So Satan is cast out of heaven. His access to heaven during the tribulation period comes to an end. His ability to... Accuse the brethren before the Father, just like He did in the days of Job, comes to an end. He is cast out and He is full of wrath because He knows His time is short. We'll talk more about that when we get to Revelation 12. But what we see here is the aftermath of that. Satan comes to earth. His desire is to pursue the woman, the nation of Israel, and to make war with the remnant of her seed. Those Jewish witnesses... The Gentile converts from the tribulation period. And Satan is then, his wrath is then unleashed upon the earth. And that's what we see here in Revelation chapter 9 with the fifth and the sixth trumpet judgments. A rising crescendo of judgments that starts with natural phenomenon, it proceeds into supernatural phenomena coming down from the heavens into Satan's wrath and finally with the seven bold judgments the wrath of God Himself. Satan, or the dragon, is allowed to do a lot of things during this time. And you might ask yourself, why would God allow Satan to do this? Satan has been allowed to do a lot of things throughout history. Okay, One of those, as we see here in Revelation 9, is to open the bottomless pit, or as the word in the Greek, the abyss. Satan is given the authority to open this pit, and to unleash demonic torment on mankind. Now that might not go with your understanding of God, but we need to remember that God is in control of everything, and even evil is subject to His purposes, and is used to bring about His ultimate glory. So Satan is allowed to do lots of things, but none of these things can operate outside of God's governance. Satan cannot accomplish what God does not allow him to accomplish. And I can't emphasize that enough. We see it in Job. I think that is given to us in the Bible so we can understand the proper order of things in terms of good and evil. That's why we have that story of Job, Satan allowed to attack him but God ultimately bringing greater good. So I want to start this morning, I want to turn real quickly before we look at what happens when this pit is open, we know Satan is given authority to open it. But I want to highlight a very important truth in one of the words of Jesus. Sometimes Jesus's most bold and powerful statements as I see it are somewhat obscure. They're kind of in a, in a place in the Scriptures where you wouldn't figure them to be. And they're often overlooked. And I believe what we see from the words of Christ in John chapter 19, verse 11, is a very bold declaration about the true nature of things. And an example of, of what Jesus says to Pilate here would apply to Satan. I love preaching this verse to persecuted Christians. Christians that suffer uh, because of society and culture and religion that hates them and attempts to give them problems at every turn of life. I believe this passage is of great comfort. John chapter 19, I'll start at verse 10. Jesus is before Pilate. Pilate is the governor, the Roman governor, who's been given authority in this situation to either condemn Christ or to set Him free. Then Pilate saith unto him, This is Jesus, speakest thou not unto me? You know, Pilate wanted him to give answer to the accusations that were made against him, and Jesus gave no answer. He saw no desire to defend himself. Knowest thou not that I have power to crucify thee and power to release thee? Listen to what Jesus said. Jesus answered, Thou couldest have no power at all except it were given thee from above. That's a powerful statement. Jesus made sure Pilate, the governor, understood that he had no power unless it had been given him from God above. Understand, my friends, that Satan, the dragon, the star fallen from heaven, has no power in this life or in this world unless it's given him from above. It is given him from above for a season so that God in the end is glorified. Satan is the prince of the power of the air. He's the god of this world. We're not living in the millennium as some teach. Satan has full and free reign, but only as far as God will let him act. It's not spiritual dualism, good versus evil, as religions teach. It's monotheism, a benevolent Creator God who governs all things and allows many things to happen because He sees the end. And He knows the end from the beginning, even though we may not. So, when you're faced with trial and temptation and persecution, remind yourself of these words of Jesus a man can have no power over you unless God gives it to him. And as Christians, if we truly believe the Word of God in Romans eight twenty eight, all things happen for good to them that love God and are called according to His purpose. Now, it's easy for me to sit here and say this, granted, and it's something that I've struggled with in trials and temptations, and not being discouraged. But I think we can fight that discouragement by calling to mind specific Scriptures. And this is one you would do well to remember. Thou couldst have no power except it were given thee from above. In my opinion, this in terms of Jesus' blunt boldness, His chutzpah, as they call it in, in Jewish culture, the ability to speak truth, something we need more of nowadays in American culture, this ranks second only to what Jesus said in John 14, 6 in terms of bold, blunt truth. So we could learn from our Savior. But let's let that truth spoken by Jesus... God in flesh, who gave His life for our sins, let it guide and govern us as we study these terrible judgments in Revelation that are unleashed upon the earth. Judgments in which Satan has a modicum or a measure of authority. Antichrist will have much authority during that period. And many will question why would a benevolent God allow this to happen? Not understanding that God is above all and does everything for His glory and His good. Revelation 9 verse 1, John saw a star fall from heaven and to him was given the same terminology used of the first seal when the rider on the white horse, the imposter, was given a crown by God. Satan is given the key of the bottomless pit. Verse 2, and he opened the bottomless pit. So we're in our outline, we're down here at the bottom of the first page, Revelation 9, small letter B the bottomless pit. Satan opened the bottomless pit. In Greek this is the word where, from which we get abyss. Okay, I was taught by one of my uh, professors in college, a, a very wise man, very old school preaching professor, never to pronounce Greek words from the pulpit. That all you do is confuse people, they're never going to speak Greek, and it's just a way to make yourself look intelligent And there's no need to do that. So he always suggested to say something along the lines of, from the word used in the original language, we understand this meaning. So I'm not even going to pronounce the Greek word, but it's from where we get the word abyss. And so you can see that clear in that word. Satan opened the abyss. Now this word in Greek appears seven times in the book of Revelation. And only one other time in Scripture. Somebody turn, uh, uh, Jason, you look ready. Turn to Luke chapter 8, verse 31. And I want you to read this verse. Now, this is where Jesus confronts the demoniac in the land of the Gadarenes. The one that was possessed by legion. The legion of devils. Jesus cast those devils into the pigs. But it's an interesting thing what this legion asked Jesus to please not do before he does that. Luke 8:31. And they besought him that he would not command them to go out into the deep. These demons begged Jesus, please don't cast us into the deep. That word deep is the exact same word in the Greek that's being used here and translated pit or bottomless pit. So these demons asked Jesus, please don't send us into the abyss. I think we have a clue here as to what the purpose of the abyss is. And I think we see it mentioned under another name in the parable of the rich man. The abyss is the abode or prison of demon spirits. We've talked about this before. I'm not going to get into it in depth. But the demons, I believe, are the disembodied spirits that are left over from the offspring of angels cohabitating with women mentioned in Genesis chapter 6. What did this produce in this world? It produced giants and mighty men, composite creatures, half supernatural, half natural. Okay? That's why Noah was called perfect in his generations. That's why God chose him. Not because he was perfect and without sin, But his line had not been tainted by this intermarriage. I believe the demon spirits, they're also called unclean spirits, seducing spirits, familiar spirits. I believe these are disembodied spirits that require something in which to live. That's why they don't exist independently. They possess things. That's why these demons begged Christ to send them into something else and not into the deep which is the prison house or the uh, uh, abode of demon spirits. The demon spirits are not fallen angels. In Revelation 12, Satan and his angels are cast out of heaven. It was angels that came down and married with women in Genesis 6. I believe those are different than demons. I believe angels can take physical form. Okay? So... These are not things I would dogmatically push on anyone and I realize that with finer points of doctrine there are disagreement among legitimate believers. I'm just sharing with you what I see from the study of Scriptures. If, it may not be accurate, okay? Because I think some of these things aren't clearly revealed for whatever reason. But the abyss is the abode of demon spirits and these demon spirits are somehow related, I believe, to what happened in Genesis 6. And Satan is given the authority and the entry, he's given the key to open this abode and to literally release the demon spirits confined there upon the earth. He's literally given the authority to release hell on earth. It says, and he opened the bottomless pit. Satan opened it. We're going to see later what comes out. I believe these are demon spirits. All of them collected there that are there in the deep where the legion didn't want to go, they're unleashed. People talk about hell on earth, I've been to hell on earth, whatever, whatever. These are foolish things. But there's coming a day when there will be hell on earth. And the fifth trumpet and the sixth trumpet are related to that, I believe. I believe the fifth and sixth trumpet are literally hell on earth. Okay? The abyss, the bottomless pit. I've got a chart for you here that I think will kind of help you understand what the Bible, I believe, teaches concerning hell or the underworld. And I don't know if you have this or not, but there's a lot of interesting references here. This is one of uh, Clarence Larkin's charts from the early 1900s. I like looking at these. They give me a picture of what the Scriptures say, and they're good at visualizing exactly what Scripture teaches. Okay. I want to look for a minute as we think about this bottomless pit. What does the Scripture teach about the underworld? Or hell, as it's sometimes generally called. Okay. If you look at this graph, you'll see that you have this underworld. The grave is the door to the underworld. Okay. That's something that's taught very much in Scripture. Is The grave is the door between the natural world and the spiritual world. And the spiritual world includes what's often been called the underworld. Okay, The underworld, according to Scripture, I believe, is basically a gate, which is the grave. It's a VIP lounge, which is no longer used. It's empty. And it's three prison houses. Okay, And I think we see this from Scripture. Maybe you've never heard this before. But I think we can, it's interesting to see the different words used that are translated hell in the New Testament. Hell is a general term that refers to the underworld. But there are places in the underworld or, or prison houses for particular reasons that I think the original language sometimes sheds light on those things as well as the context. Okay, so we've got a VIP lounge and we've got three compartments. The VIP lounge is called Paradise. In the scriptures. In Luke chapter 16, it's referred to as Abraham's bosom. Okay? I want you, let's look up some scriptures this morning. Matthew, Luke 16, 2. Um, is Daniel in here? Okay. Um Bob. Let's have you look up uh Matthew 27, 52 and 53. And Jim, if you'll look up Ephesians 4, 8, and 9. Paradise, I believe, is the was the abode of the righteous dead prior to Christ's resurrection. It's where the righteous, the souls of the righteous went to find rest. Once Jesus died and paid the sacrifice and was resurrected, His blood having been offered on that heavenly altar, now these souls of the righteous dead could actually have access to the presence of God. And so Jesus led captivity captive so that now, on this side of the resurrection, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Lazarus went to Abraham's bosom, the thief, the penitent thief on the cross. Jesus said, today you will be with me in paradise. That was the VIP lounge, or Abraham's bosom of the underworld. Okay, uh, Luke 16.22. It came to pass that the beggar died and was carried by the angels into Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. Okay. Lazarus was carried by the angels into Abraham's bosom, which is paradise. Okay, what's the next verse there? Um, Matthew twenty-seven, fifty-two and fifty-three. And graves were opened, and Get many out. bodies of the saints which slept arose, and came out of the graves after his resurrection, and and went into the holy city, and appeared unto men. Okay, so Jesus Christ died and was buried, and rose from the dead, and it said that graves were opened, and it said that bodies of the saints were seen in the holy city, for a time. This is what we've called the first fruits of the resurrection. Christ was raised in a resurrection body and with Him there were first fruits. There were some saints in that day that were given their resurrection bodies. I don't know who they were, but it was a testimony and they were seen. This happened at the same time as what Paul describes in Ephesians 4. If you could read that. Ephesians 4, 8, and 9. Wherefore He said, when He was standing up on high, He led... Would... Captivity, captive, and gave gave gifts to men. Now he ascended. What is it? But that he also descended first into the lower parts of the earth. Okay, it's talking about Christ. hath ascended on high. He ascended to be with God the Father, and when he did so, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. Okay, what does that mean? Well, it goes on to say, What is it that He ascended if He did not first ascend into what? The lower parts of the earth. That's not a reference to us right here, as some people teach. That wasn't, wouldn't even make sense. Lower parts of the earth is the underworld. Christ died, was buried, and He was in the underworld, in paradise. He preached to the angels in prison, or the spirits in prison, it tells us somewhere else. Christ was given access to the underworld. He went down there. He preached. He led captivity captive. He preached victory and judgment. Led captivity captive. What did that mean? He led the souls captive in paradise. Yes, a place of rest, a place of peace, a place of joy, but still captive because it wasn't in the presence of God. He led captivity captive himself and ascended on high. and the signs of that in Jerusalem in the day was graves open. There was a testimony of that. So paradise, I believe, is now empty. Okay? The thief was one of the last to go to paradise. That transition from the Old Testament saint to the New Testament church. Now, as Paul tells us, I believe it's 1 Corinthians, or is it 2 Corinthians, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Okay? There is no soul sleep. When we die, our spirit goes to be with the Lord, awaiting the day of the rapture when it will be reunited with the body. So, paradise, I mean, uh, the, uh, the, uh, the underworld has a VIP lounge, paradise. This is empty. There's another abode or prison house, one of three prison houses in the underworld. The first one is hell, or what's in the Greek, well, we get the word Hades, okay? Hades, or hell, is the prison for the souls of the wicked dead. Okay? Luke 16.22, Lazarus goes to Abraham's bosom. The rich man is buried. What does it say in the very next verse? Luke 16.23. I'll turn there real quick to save a little time. It says, the rich man was died and was buried. Verse 23, and in hell. This is the from the Greek, word we, the Greek word from where we get Hades, He lifted up his eyes, being in torment, and seeth Abraham afar off, and Lazarus in his bosom. Hell is the prison house for the wicked dead. It's still occupied. It's a place of torment, where the souls of the wicked dead go upon their death to await judgment And the resurrection of their bodies that they might be cast into what we're going to see later is called Gehenna, the eternal lake of fire. Also, we are told in Luke 16 that there's a great gulf that separates paradise from hell. You know, Jesus told, it's never said that this is a parable here. We call it a parable often mistakenly. But it never says it's a parable. He, Jesus is telling them something He knew about. Um, and in hell He lifted up His eyes. And then if you go to verse 26, this guy is asking, please send Abraham to bring me a drop of water. And Abraham says, besides all this, there is between us and you a great gulf fixed. So that it's impossible for, people, for us to go back and forth. So there's a great gulf that separates paradise from Hades. I believe this great gulf is the abyss. It's the entrance to the abyss. A great gulf. The abyss, the prison house of the demon spirits. Hades, the prison house of the wicked dead. Paradise, the abode of the righteous dead. So you can see in this chart here, the great gulf is the hole down to the bottomless pit there's also a another compartment of hell another prison house it's the Greek word used is where we get the word Tartarus Tartarus okay Tartarus is another prison in the underworld Um, Jason could you look up 2nd Peter chapter 2 verse 4 and daddy I'll let you look up Jude verse 6 Tartarus, another prison house. Go ahead and read that if you get it. 2 Peter 2.4 For if God spared not the angels that sinned, but cast them down to hell and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved unto judgment. Okay, God spared not the angels that sinned, In the context, and also in Jude, we have this talked about. This is a reference to the angels that sinned against God's creative order in Genesis 6. They came down and married with women, had sex with women, things that we learn. And God took these angels and bound them in chains and cast them into hell. The word hell here in 2 Peter is Tartarus in the Greek. So these angels were punished and thrown into Tartarus for that crime against God's creative order. This was not the same angels that fell from heaven with Satan spiritually in the beginning. These were angels that defied the creative order of God. Jude verse 6, And the angels which kept not their first estate, but left their own habitation, he hath reserved in everlasting chains under darkness, unto the judgment of the great day. These fallen angels that left their first estate, they left the created order, they're in everlasting chains. Peter and Jude are talking about the same thing where they're reserved unto the judgment of the great day. On the judgment of the great day, the wicked will be judged at the great white throne. (coughs) These fallen angels that broke the creative order will be judged. The demon spirits will be judged. As will Satan, the Antichrist, and the false prophet. They'll all be judged. Tartarus is another prison house in hell. It's the prison of a class of fallen angels connected to Genesis 6. Okay, And then, of course, we have the abyss, the final prison house, that great gulf I've already mentioned. It's the prison house of demons. And as we see here in Revelation 9, it is opened as the fifth trumpet judgment. Later in chapter 11, we'll see that the abyss is connected directly with Antichrist. The beast that slays God's two witnesses, is the, ab- the, be- the Antichrist is the ab- beast that comes out of the bottomless pit. Okay? Elsewhere, uh, Antichrist is called the son of perdition. Jesus uses that same terminology to describe Judas, the son of perdition. And then we have the apostles say something very interesting in Acts chapter 1 when talking about replacing Judas, that what he did, he did what was ordained of God to do, and he hung himself, and it says he went to his own place. I don't really know what that means. I think somehow Judas Iscariot is connected with Antichrist, and it's also connected with the abyss or the bottomless pit. We learn later that the abyss is closed in Revelation 20 when Satan is cast in there in chains and he's bound for a thousand years. And then after the millennium, it's opened again and Satan is let loose for a little season. The abyss is the abode of the demon spirits. Okay, So that's an interesting um, picture of the underworld. Now, Larkin also has listed here the lake of fire. Okay, I personally believe that the lake of fire doesn't belong with these other places. I believe it's outside of that. Okay, I believe these other prison houses are connected with the present world. The lake of fire, or as it's called, uh, as it, as it's called in the Greek, Gehenna, is the eternal hell. Okay, all of these other hells are temporal, just like this earth. okay. And those that are kept in these prison houses now will ultimately be cast into the eternal penitentiary. If you think of a man dying without Christ, who goes to hell, what we say hell. Hell is like the county jail, spiritually speaking. It's a place where people are held awaiting judgment. When they are judged for the works and sentenced by God at the great white throne, they are then cast into the eternal penitentiary which is the lake of fire, or Gehenna, as Jesus Christ called it. Gehenna is the second death. It's a spiritual death. Just as the new heavens and the new earth are eternal, so is Gehenna, or what we call it in Revelation, the lake of fire. Now that word Gehenna in the New Testament is used numerous times, but only by Christ in the Gospels and then one other time in James chapter 3, verse 6, James compares the tongue and the evil that the tongue can do to the fires of Gehenna. Not the fires of Hades, but the fires of an eternal hell. That's how dangerous the tongue is. But elsewhere, Jesus uses the word Gehenna. In Matthew 25, it's called everlasting fire. In Mark 9, Jesus quotes Isaiah 66 and describes Gehenna as a place where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. And then, of course, in Revelation 19 and 20, the lake of fire. Whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire, an eternal place. When I look at this chart, I believe the lake of fire should be outside the earthly dimension of the underworld. So I think it should be placed outside of this, just like the new heavens and the new earth. I think that might be a way to better design it, but who am I? It's still a good chart. Turn real quick to Isaiah 66. I think this is something that many of us don't realize in terms of hell and its purpose throughout all of eternity. You know, it's not cast everybody in the lake of fire, it goes into another dimension and there's no remembrance of it whatsoever. Actually, this lake of fire is an eternal... Testimony to God's righteousness. Isaiah 66, the very last verses. Chapter, verse 22 through 24. Look at what Isaiah sees. Okay? He sees a new heaven and a new earth just like John does at the end of the book. In verse 22. For as the new heavens and the new earth which I will make shall remain before me, saith the Lord, so shall your seed and your name remain. God would reserve unto Himself the seed of Israel for all eternity. They would always have a seed and a remnant throughout eternity. This promise to Israel given through Isaiah the prophet is not now spiritually applied to the church. It was given to Israel and God will reserve a remnant of Israel. doesn't mean they get saved any different than a Gentile. It just means God will ensure that a remnant will be. So shall your seat, your name remain, and it shall come to pass that from one new moon to another, and from one Sabbath to another, shall all flesh come to worship before me, saith the Lord. This is the schedule of worship in the new heavens and the new earth. Coming to worship the new moons, there will be a new moon in the heavens, eternal heaven, new heaven and new earth, there will be a Sabbath, and all flesh will come to worship. Then look at this. After they come to worship, what happens? They shall go forth and look upon the carcasses of the men that have transgressed against me. For their worms shall not die, neither shall their fire be quenched, and they shall be an abhorring unto all flesh. Now this is the verse that Jesus quotes three times in Mark chapter 9 to describe the eternal hell. Worm. Dieth not, the fire is not quenched. He is quoting Isaiah 66. What is the eternal hell here? Gehenna. It's an everlasting testimony that the people who come to worship God will look upon for all eternity an abhorring to all flesh to remind them of God's righteousness. So, is the eternal Gehenna a place that's permanently put out of our mind in the new heavens and the new earth? I don't believe so. I don't believe it will be a a sight that will bring tears to us. I don't believe it will be a sight that brings sadness. It will bring abhorrence, abhorrence towards sin and a greater love for God. It's an everlasting burning, just like that fire in the lampstand in the temple was never to go out. It's an everlasting burning that I believe we will see from a distance In the new heaven and the new earth. I don't think you could come to any other conclusion by reading these verses. Gehenna is a lake of fire. It's the ultimate judgment. It's just as eternal as the new heavens and the new earth. Now, there were two people, kids, let me ask you if you know this, there were two people in the history of the world, two men that never died. They went straight to be with God. That's one of them, good. The other one starts with an E. No. The other one starts with an E too. Way back in the beginning, the book of Genesis. Enoch and Elijah, there were only two people that were cast alive, per se, into heaven. And in the history of the world, there will also be only two people cast alive into Gehenna without going to Hades. They'll go straight into the eternal lake of fire. Do you know who those people are? We learn about that in Revelation. No. (laughs) Antichrist and the false prophet are the only two cast alive straight into Gehenna. There's not even going to necessarily be a judgment per se. God's just going to throw them in there. The beast and the false prophet are cast alive into Gehenna, Revelation 19. And we learn that Gehenna is also the ultimate abode of Satan and all wickedness. So, in the underworld, these different entities are separated in different prison houses. Fallen angels, demons, the wicked dead. In eternal Gehenna, it's all thrown in there together. So, you die in your sins, you go to hell awaiting judgment, and then you're cast into the lake of fire. Your company for all eternity will also be Satan, the beast, The false prophet, all the demon spirits, all the fallen angels, all thrown in there together. An eternal burning, a testimony to God's righteousness. Why are we so afraid to talk about these things today? You look back at great men of God throughout history, used of God to preach righteousness in our country during the periods of Reformation and other times throughout history. They were hellfire and brimstone preachers that weren't afraid to share these deep, dark truths that have been revealed to us by God. These difficult truths. What we need in America more than anything else today amongst Christians is not only chutzpah one toward another, but hellfire and brimstone preaching. Hellfire and brimstone preaching that's biblical. And it doesn't need to be screaming and hollering. You don't hear me screaming and hollering today. But this is hellfire and brimstone as defined in the Scriptures. So it's interesting to study these things out and see where they bring us. So, what we've got is this underworld. Satan, verse 2, opened the bottomless pit, the abode of the demon spirits in the underworld. He was given the authority to do so. Later we see an angel given a key or possessing a key and a great chain and he bounds Satan and throws Satan into the bottomless pit for a thousand years. You see, God gives out keys to whoever He wants to just like the owner of the Aikido dojo where I work out gives out keys to several people, one of whom is me. I have access. That doesn't mean that Satan and the angel in Revelation 20 are the same. God gives out keys for His purposes, but it's Christ that's got the Master set. He's the one that holds the keys of hell and death, and He decides when to change the locks so that the keys don't work for those who have been given those keys. Okay, what happens after this? He opened the bottomless pit, verse 2, and there arose a smoke out of the pit as the smoke of a great furnace and the sun and the air were darkened by reason of the smoke of the pit. Verse 1, we see that fallen star and the authority given to Him. In verse 2, let's look at the ascending smoke. The ascending smoke. Verse 2 is the physical effect of the fifth trumpet judgment what happens? The pit is opened and smoke comes out and pollutes the air. It covers the sun and the air. A great smoke like that of a burning furnace. What is this? Simply stated, this is the darkening pollution of hell. Now there's a lot of people who joke about hell. Sometimes they talk about hell on earth. They joke about hell, but little do they, these realize how ignorant they are of its torments. And it's just the smoke of hell is described as the burning of a great furnace here. This physical effect that comes out and literally pollutes the air in a way that no man-made carbon fuel could ever do. It's kind of interesting because it says the, the smoke darkens the sun and the air. This proves that the sixth seal judgment in which the sun became black as sackcloth and the moon red as blood is only a temporary thing. It's not permanent. So there's a temporary judgment in the sixth seal. Then we see the calendar messed up with the fourth trumpet where a third of the sun is darkened or whatever. And then we see the sun darkened again by this uh, smoke. Later, the sun has excessive heat in one of the bowl judgments, a wrath of God vile judgments to scorch men. Okay, this smoke is very, in sim- the darkness created by this smoke is very similar to the physical effects of the ninth Egyptian plague. Now, back uh, when we started talking about the trumpet judgments, I mentioned how there was a lot of similarities here between the plagues poured out on Egypt and these trumpet judgments. And how just as the Egyptian plague specifically targeted gods and goddesses in the Egyptian pantheon to destroy to, uh, just to demonstrate God's power, so do these trumpet judgments target the gods of men. Okay, And we talked about that with the first four. But the Egyptian plague, the ninth plague, Exodus chapter 10. Let's turn there for a moment. I think it's good to get out of the book and look at these things as we study. It makes us move slow, but we get a comprehensive study of the book instead of just moving through it swiftly. Revelation I mean Exodus chapter 10 I'll just read a couple of verses verse 21 This is the ninth plague just before the plague where God kills the unborn and institutes the Passover And the Lord said unto Moses stretch out thine hand toward heaven that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt even darkness which may be felt How many of you have ever been in darkness that can be felt where was that? Cave. cave. <laughs> now, a lot of us went in, A lot of you all went into caves that are kind of set up for tourists, and they've got lights, and so you've got lights to see when you go down there. And they cut them off for a few minutes, and then they cut them back on, and everything's lit up. I used to kind of be into caving, and one of these days I want to visit this cave we we found up in northwestern Virginia. It was called the Breathing Cave, and I found a diagram of the rooms in some obscure microfilm at a library. It's on a guy's property. I took Jamie out there one time. Did Beth? Did you go out there with us? Okay, but you you have to hike out on this guy's property, and he doesn't mind if you go out there. You just have to sign a register in case you get lost or something. But you hike through these woods, and you come around a a hill, and there's this gaping hole in the earth, and you can just—it's almost breathing. And there's bats everywhere. But you walk way down in this corridor and at the end there's a fork in the trail. It's a high ceiling. But you, you can still see the light from the entrance and you either go left or right. And either left or right involves at least about 50 to 60 feet of crawling on your belly. And then you open up into these rooms. There, is no light, there are no lights in there. So you carry a lantern. It, you get filthy dirty. You pay very close attention to the map. And you don't stray too far. And you make sure you leave you know, a, a trail so you can get out. Okay? We used to go down in there. We'd carry a lantern. If you lost light in there, you'd be in trouble. you just have to wait. And that's why you signed the register and told them when you planned to come out. Because if you didn't come out and check out, they would know there's a problem. So you may be sitting in there a few days. The good thing is when you're in that kind of darkness, you lose all sense of time your biological clock gets totally messed up and I remember there was one occasion where we went in there for a couple of hours we didn't take our watches and we came out to discover we'd been in there like seven hours and had no idea okay mm-hmm. so darkness that can be felt we would go back in there and just turn off the lights and just sit there and take a nap. And you could literally not see your hand right here, and you could feel the darkness. And when you feel the darkness, you have no sense of time whatsoever. There's there's a, there's a taste of that in the cave. okay? The plague that came upon Egypt was that type of darkness. So not only could it be felt, but when you can feel darkness, you can't sense time. So it messed everything up. And then, of course, we know... This happened for three days. A thick darkness in all the land of Egypt. They saw not one another. Neither was any able to raise up from his place for three days. When you're in that, you really lose the ability to do much of anything. You don't even want to move around. And but Israel had light in their dwellings. I didn't, I, I've never quite understood did, did this even mean that the Egyptians couldn't even make light? They couldn't even light a candle. I don't know. It's very interesting. Supernatural plagues, not natural, but darkness that could be felt has effects just beyond not being able to see. Okay, so we have the ninth plague reflected here in this smoke—the smoke of a great sun, sun that of a fir- great furnace that darkens the sun and the air. Now we have furnace imagery here: the smoke of a great furnace. Okay. I believe that this language here portends a spiritual nature to this judgment. Yes, there's a physical effect, and that is darkness from the opening of the pit. But the furnace imagery portends a spiritual nature. What we see come out of the pit, I don't believe it's physical. I don't believe necessarily that you'll even be able to see it. I believe it's related to spiritual torment. What we have is an unleashing of hell upon earth. An unleashing of demons to do to men what they're able to do to an extent nowadays. And men will not be able to control it. They won't be able to prevent it. They won't even have the free choice to kill themselves. Something that we see as an effect of demonic possession. So I think the nature of this judgment is demonic possession and oppression. And that's, that furnace imagery portends that. So, what we have primarily here, if you want to define this seal, we have an unmasking of evil. Evil is masked today. Satan comes as an angel of light and he's able to deceive. Even so much so that Satan is able to deceive Brethren, into believing they hear from God. Satan cannot possess a believer. Just like the Jewish remnant sealed by God in Revelation is not affected by this demonic unleashing, neither are believers able to be possessed today. Neither are uh, demons able to do to believers what they do to non-believers. The Bible tells, gives us great spiritual power. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. That's a power a lost man doesn't have because he doesn't have the Spirit of God. The door is open or the gate or the the pit is open, the smoke comes out, there's darkness and there's the imagery of a furnace. What is whispered about in secret nowadays, what is feared in man-made religion, what is fought against with superstition and ritual, And what is cloaked in our country by modern technology is literally unmasked and unleashed here out of the smokes of the underworld. There's a very well-known book that was written by a woman years ago who was involved in the occult and she was involved involved in spiritualism where she was a spirit guide and had communion with these spirits that were supposedly good spirits. One of them even called himself Jesus Okay? But she talked about a day when this Jesus spirit she communed with literally took off his mask and revealed who he really was. And as a result, it, it caused great turmoil in her spirit. It was ultimately what led her to Christ and to be able to share some of these testimonies about the beautiful side of evil and about the deceptiveness of it. There's coming a day when the angel of light imagery. Satan's going to just throw that off. There's an unmasking. And then real evil is unleashed. And people that think they have it all figured out, people that think there is no devil, people that think they're hearing from God or all of these good, wonderful things about the gods and goddesses they worship in man-made religion are going to find out exactly who these devils are. An unmasking and an unleashing of hell on earth is what we have here with the fifth seal. How much better, my friends, to know Christ today and to escape not only hell in eternity, but hell on earth if Christ should come for His church and if we should be alive in these days. How much better to know Christ today and escape the wrath to come. 1 Thessalonians 1.10 We're encouraged to wait for the Son of God from heaven who has delivered us from the wrath to come. That's a promise for the believer. Come to Christ today. And children, you don't have to be afraid of any of this stuff. You don't have to be afraid of demon locusts coming up from hell to torment men. Because Christ's children will be taken from this. The church will be taken out. And those sealed by God to do the work during this period will be protected as we see later in the chapter. So we've got the fallen star in in the fifth trumpet judgment. Satan given authority to open the pit. We've got the smoke of the pit that unleashes darkness and the pollution of hell. And then, in the rest of verses 3-12, through we have the locust-like creatures. The smoke, the darkness, is the physical effect of this fifth trumpet judgment. The locust-like creatures is the spiritual effect of this fifth trumpet judgment. Let's read a few verses here. Chapter 9, verse 3. And there came out of the smoke. What came out of the smoke? Locusts upon the earth, and unto them was given... Here we have this phrase again. Was given power, as the scorpions of the earth have power. And it was commanded them that they should not hurt the grass of the earth, Neither any green thing, neither any tree. Locusts plague on green things. So we automatically see these aren't literal locusts because they don't do what locusts do. They're not allowed to do what locusts do. And it was commanded them they should not hurt the grass of the earth, neither any green thing, neither any tree, but only those men which have not the seal of God in their foreheads. And, it was, and to them it was given that they should not kill them. They were given authority to torment, but not to kill. Just like Satan was given authority to torment Job physically, but not to kill him. But that they should be tormented five months. And their torment was as the torment of a scorpion when he strikes a man. In those days shall men seek death and shall not find it, and shall desire to die, and death shall flee from them. Wow. Wow. Let's look at the commission of these locust-like creatures. Verses 3 and 4. They were unleashed out of the smoke. They were given power just like a scorpion has power. And they were commanded not to hurt the greenery, the herbs, and the trees, but men which did not have the seal of God in their foreheads. Who were the men without the seal of God? 144,000. I believe it could also possibly be those tribulation saints that come to God out of the gentiles that have never hear, clearly heard the gospel. It doesn't say that, but when a believer is born again, he is sealed, okay? So this is meant to hurt those who have not the seal or testimony of God in their foreheads. We know that's the 144,000. That's what's that was their commission. Unleash, don't hurt the trees, but hurt the men that have rejected God. Now this aspect of the fifth trumpet is similar to the eighth Egyptian plague. So we've kind of got the darkness of the ninth plague and the locust of the eighth plague meshed in together. Turn to Exodus 10. Locusts have long been a tool that God has used to bring judgment on the earth. And we see that in chapter 10. We don't really have locusts here in America like they have them in, in the Middle East, the desert locusts. We don't really see that too much here. But it can be a plague. You can go on YouTube now. Today, there was a locust plague in Madagascar not too long ago, and there's footage of it. And it is insane. There are thousands of these bugs flying through town in cities and stuff. Just like whoosh. I mean, it's crazy. So these things do happen. But Exodus chapter 10... Verses 13 uh, 13 through 15. It says, And Moses stretched forth his rod over the land of Egypt, and the Lord brought an east wind upon the land all that day and all that night. And when it was morning, the east wind brought the locust. And the locust went up over all the land of Egypt and rested in all the coast of Egypt. Very grievous were they. Before them there were no such locusts as they, neither after them shall be such. For they covered the face of the whole earth so that the land was darkened and they did eat every herb of the land and all the fruit of the trees which the hail had left and there remained not any green things in in the trees or in the herbs of the field through all the land of Egypt. This was a locust plague. These weren't ordinary locusts either. It says that there had never been locusts like that nor would there ever be. And they ate everything. So these weren't ordinary locusts in the eighth plague. However, they acted like and ate like locust. They just weren't ordinary locusts. They were super locusts sent by God. There was a supernatural element to this. But they acted like and ate like locust. Here we have this same type of plague. Just as the eighth plague were locusts on steroids, when we go to Revelation chapter 9, these locust-like creatures... Not locusts, but locust-like creatures are like the 8th Egyptian plague on steroids. Okay, It's even beyond that. Here also, in Revelation 9, we're not dealing with ordinary locusts here. And the immediate context is very clear. They swarmed out of the pit like locusts, but their weapons were like scorpions. If We're, we're going to go on to read that these were composite creatures. Okay, there's, they're talked about as chariots, as men, as horses, as women, as scorpions. They're composite creatures. Just like the composite creatures described in Revelation 4 that worship God around His throne, those beasts full of eyes. In Ezekiel 1, the same thing. One of the creatures God has made, the cherubim that come to bring glory to Him, are composite creatures. These locust-like creatures are the anti-cherubim. They're infernal cherubim. They're not literal locusts. They're locusts of a hellish species. Okay? Not ordinary locusts. Neither are they some shadowed reference to heretics or armies of Goths or Mohammedans that attacked Europe in the early days. They're not Jesuits. They're not the Catholic Church. They're not the Turkish army as some people that believe Revelation's already been fulfilled in the past, would say, these are creatures from the abyss, demonic spirits of a hellish species. They are a composite creature. They swarm like locusts swarm over the earth, but they have power as a scorpion has power. Um, What kind of power does a scorpion have? Anybody been bit by a scorpion I'm, or stung by a scorpion? I don't know. I haven't. has been, I think. He had a few Scorpions? Yeah, we used to have in our house in Georgia. I didn't know there were many scorpions around here in the States. Really? They're black? Weird, weird, weird. Okay, okay. It says that uh, in verse 3 that there were locusts upon the earth, and to them was given power, as the scorpions of the earth have power. What is the power of a scorpion? Well, first of all, it terrifies. People are terrified of scorpions, okay? And what else does it do? What's the pain, what's the sting of a scorpion bring? Pain and torment. A scorpion is very, very painful. That's the power of a scorpion. So these locust-like creatures swarm over the earth like a plague of locusts, but their power was to torment and to terrify. What do demon spirits do to people when they possess them? They torment them. They terrify them. They're paranoid people. They're crazy. Is what we're seeing here widespread demonic possession. These are the opposite of what we see in Revelation 4 surrounding the throne. These are the infernal cherubim, anti-cherubim, after their leader, Satan, who was once an exalted cherub before he fell. It says, Power was given unto them. Power was given not from Satan, my friends. Understand, this power given to these creatures is not from Satan, but from the Lord. Just like Antichrist in chapter 6 verse 2 was given a crown by the Lord. Just like the fallen star was given a key to the bottomless pit. Just like in Job, Satan was allowed to take Job's possessions. He was allowed to torment him. But he was not allowed to kill him we see here that these, the commission of these creatures is not to kill men but to torment them their power was given from God and it was limited it was limited now not only with the 8th Egyptian plague but locusts throughout scripture are used by God as divine judgment against a wicked world that's what they're used for In fact, when I think of the original creation before sin came into the world, there are certain creatures I'm trying to understand how could they have been part of an unfallen world? One of those, probably the number one creature, I wonder how could it have been a part of a world untainted by sin is the mosquito. What is the point of the mosquito except to torment men and torment animals? I don't know. Maybe you have the answer. I don't. Were there mosquitoes in the Garden of Eden? I don't know. Maybe there are creatures in this world that were specifically made by God to torment and judge mankind. Maybe the mosquito is one of them. I don't know. Maybe we know locusts were used that way. In fact, we see it in Exodus chapter 10. In Deuteronomy, God warns the people that if they turn from Him, He will send locusts to, to destroy their land. It was a warning, a promised judgment. And then let's end here today, turn to a little obscure book in the Old Testament, the prophet Joel. In Joel, we see Joel describe a plague of locusts, a plague of insects in his day that was happening or had just happened in Israel. And he saw that present catastrophe as an illustration of future judgment. Joel chapter 1 now, Joel the prophet, I believe, was a contemporary. When he was a young, when he was a young boy or a young child, Joel would have been living at the time of Elisha, toward the end of Elisha's life, it seems. He prophesied around the time of Jonah, and it's very possible that Joel was what's called the pioneer prophet to Judah, maybe 820 BC. Perhaps second only to Obadiah. Some people believe Obadiah was about 880 BC. Some people say it was as late as 585 BC. Those were times when the people of Edom were a snare to Israel. And Odom, Obadiah, more than anything, is a book that demonstrates the truth of Genesis 12. God said, I will bless those that bless Abraham and his descendants, I will curse those that curse Abraham and his descendants. The people of Edom, in their pride, had betrayed Israel. And God poured out judgment upon them. Just like He pours out judgment upon those nations that try to come against Israel today. Okay, Don't mess with the nation of people God has chosen for His own glory. God will use nations to judge them, that's for sure. But that's the lesson of Obadiah. So he could have been at either time period. I tend to believe he was the first of the prophets. But Joel was very early on. And in chapter 1, he describes a plague of insects and the subsequent drought and famine that happened in Judah as a type of the day of the Lord that would come, or the tribulation period, or the judgments that we're talking about now. He saw a plague of insects in the land as an occasion to preach judgment. Not only God's immediate judgment, but His ultimate judgment. We could take a lesson from that as... Christians and evangelists and preachers and as the church. We ought to look around and see the things happening in our world and see that there's a spiritual dimension to all of that. And see things as judgment. Hurricane Katrina. All of these things. There's a spiritual element to everything. Wars and rumors of war. We ought to see these occasions of judgment by God as opportunities to preach ultimate judgment and to warn men that they might be saved. That's what Joel did. Joel saw judgment in his day. Instead of calling it a natural disaster, he saw it as judgment from God and it was an occasion to warn the people of ultimate judgment. When we see these things happen around us as are happening today, we don't rejoice. We love people enough to see the spiritual dimension and to use the judgments we're seeing, collapsing economies and trials and tribulations here in America to warn men of ultimate judgment. That's the lesson of the prophets. That's the lesson of Jesus. He did that. He, he referred to a tower that fell on some folks. He referred to some people that died here or there. And He used it as an occasion to preach about ultimate judgment where except you repent, you shall all likewise perish. That's a great lesson from Job. But Job describes this plague of insects, and he talks about uh, a nation that has come upon my land strong and without number, a plague of insects. We go down toward the end of the chapter, and he talks about the drought and the famine that came as a result of that. In verse 4, he describes the palmer worm, what the palmer worm didn't eat, the locust ate, what the locust didn't eat, the cankerworm ate, and what the cankerworm left, the caterpillar ate. And this is a reference to different stages of an insect. And so I think it's all related to a locust plague in that day. And then as he describes the immediate judgment, and as you get into um, chapter two, he telescopes forward to ultimate judgment. He sees a plague of insects as judgment from God. Pointing in typical Old Testament prophecy fashion to a near horizon, which is a describe of a similar, describes a similar swarming judgment that I think would be fulfilled years later when the Babylonians came upon the land of Israel like locusts and literally swarmed over the walls in the temple and took over the place. But also a far horizon, which involves exactly what we're reading about here in Revelation chapter 9. I've talked about the nature of Old Testament prophecy, how it has a dual nature. We used Isaiah 7 as an example months ago uh, when we we looked at a similar thing uh, regarding Joel chapter 2 and God's pouring out of His Spirit upon all flesh. It was initially fulfilled at Pentecost, ultimately fulfilled with Jews that are sealed in Revelation 7. We have a similar thing here. Judgment that was prophesied, It was initially fulfilled with Babylon coming upon Israel 300 years later, but it's ultimately fulfilled in this plague of demonic locusts that are described in chapter 2 very similar to what is described in Revelation chapter 9. And the lesson we'll learn from comparing Joel 2 with Revelation 9 is something very interesting, and I'll end with this today. But take this second chart that I gave you. The mountain peaks of prophecy. I think you'll have an interesting time studying this this week and reading some of the Scriptures. We need to understand that the Old Testament prophets, when they gave their prophecies, number one, they spake by the Holy Ghost. They didn't speak of their own. That's why no prophecy of the Scriptures of any private interpretation. 2 Peter 1. But 1 Peter tells us that often they did not understand what they prophesied. They just prophesied by the power of the Holy Spirit. And they typically saw all prophecies related to Jesus as involving one coming. That's why when the apostles, after Jesus rose from the dead in Acts chapter 1, asked Jesus, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? They saw Messiah's coming as one, okay? Okay. And the Old Testament prophets, according to 1 Peter 1, 10-12, didn't understand the sufferings of Christ and the glory to follow as being separated by the church age. And so when we think of the Old Testament prophets, we think of them looking at prophecy as a man stands and looks at a range of mountains. Some of you that were in Kathmandu, we stood on our roof that day and on a very rare day when it's very clear you can see Mount Everest from Kathmandu. What you see is a big, huge mountain massif. And it looks like you're seeing one big single mountain from a distance. The Everest you're seeing is simply the top of it, which is the peak of Everest sticking out over other mountain massifs that are separated by valleys. So the big thing you're seeing is not Everest, it's only the top of it. But from a distance it looks like one mountain and people in here can give testimony to that. When we look at a mountain from that perspective, we don't see all the valleys in between. It all looks like one peak because they blend together. Study this chart and you'll see that that's what the prophets saw. On this side of the Scripture being given to men, on this side of the resurrection, in this day, in this church age, we see the mountain peaks and the valleys from the side from a side perspective. So we're able to separate the first and second comings of Christ. So it's, a, it's interesting the different perspectives. So study that a little bit this week and I'll talk some more the next time we come together. But let me say this. We'll look at Joel 2 next time in a little more detail but we read about this army in Joel chapter 2. They're described in terms of the same terminology you find in Revelation 9. Horses and chariots of painting the people. Not killing the people. of The people being pained because of their judgment. Of them climbing walls like men of war. And they, won't be, they can't be killed or wounded. The, the earth will quake before them. And then verse 11. It's talking about this army. And the Lord shall utter His voice before His army. This army described in Joel 2 is the locust-like army of Revelation 9. And what is it called? It's called His army. God's army. Can you handle that truth? It's a tough truth to digest, but it's what's revealed to us. There is a sovereign God over all creation who governs all things. Even evil and the powers of darkness are limited. They have no power unless it's given them from above. I'm okay with a God who reveals Himself like that. I trust Him. I trust Him Just like Habakkuk the prophet, even though all of these evil things happen in my day and I see them and everything looks lost, yet my trust is in the Lord. And that should be our faith in these dark days which aren't near as dark as they're going to be. In this seeming hell on earth that isn't anywhere close to the hell on earth that comes. Alright, so we're kind of deep into this. Uh, I believe um, the next time we'll get into Revelation will be the first Sunday in January. Is that correct? Next week is our program. The week after that, I want to finish sharing about the mission work we did in South Asia uh, the the Sunday between Christmas and New Year's, and then we'll pick this up. I had hoped to do Revelation 9, but you start studying, you realize, man, this is an opportunity to talk about hell. This is an opportunity to talk about some things we see in the Old Testament. And as we start putting these things together, it can help you to go study some of these books and realize that what's preached and prophesied in the Old Testament is no different than what's in the New Testament. Away with this mentality, the God of the Old Testament versus the God of the New Testament. Away with this mentality, Old Testament versus New Testament. It's all one. It all reveals the same God. And never in the history of mankind has a man ever been saved by his works. It's always been by faith. Faith looking forward to a promise or faith looking back upon a promise? Is it really that different other than a perspective of time? Anybody have any questions? Man, I enjoyed sitting down today. I enjoyed looking like Rob Bell today. <laughs> I trust I didn't preach like him today because I did talk about hell. I did say there was a hell. Um, but uh, I apologize. We've gone over. Let's... Um, Let's pray and let's fellowship together over a meal today.